Good morning to our loyal WFYL listeners around the world. Welcome back to your Philadelphia Friday, only on Fox News Radio. I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in once again, because you still have the right to hear and the right to be heard. We're here with you on 1180 AM and broadcasting real time at 1180WFYL.com. Coming to you straight from the birthplace of liberty here in the greater Philadelphia area. And we continue to fight day in, day out as your voice of freedom in the Delaware Valley. I'm attorney Mike Jeremita from Jeremita Offices, but everybody knows me as Mike G. And you're listening to Mike G in the morning with The Law Matters. And you can listen to our program every Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. So let's be heard. We're going to jump right into the action today. I've got Philly Chris with me here in studio this morning. Chris, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back in, Mike. Good morning, everyone. You know, exciting time for us in politics, right? Another one bites the dust. I should say another several bite the dust on the Democrat side, right? They're uh, falling. They're falling to the side. So right before Super Tuesday, Buttigieg dropped out, Klobuchar dropped out, Tom Steyer dropped out, and now we see Elizabeth Warren suspended her campaign, Mm -hmm. and Bloomberg hardly knew you. He's gone himself. Spent a few dollars there. So it's down to two. You know- For as much as the left seems to complain about people being white or old or men, Mm -hmm. (laughs) look who they've got for their choices. Kind of interesting (laughs) how that worked out, isn't it? (laughs) A bunch of hypocrites, aren't they? So we got Uncle Creepy, Mm -hmm. had a big Super Tuesday. He really did. He surprised me. Did that surprise you at all? Yeah, a little bit surprising for sure. I didn't see that coming. No. Of note for our listeners, though, he did say in the aftermath that he's going to put Beto O'Rourke in charge of gun policy oh, if he's elected. <laughs> so I remember that guy who said, what was it? Hell yes, I'm going to take your AR-15. Uh, yeah, I think that's what he said. Yes, oh, that's that right. Mm. Biden's taking that on then. Wow. I'm sorry, Uncle Creepy. We only call him Uncle Creepy on this program. But, you know, Bernie doesn't seem to think too highly of our Second Amendment either, does he, Chris? Uh, doesn't appear to be a big fan, Mike, no. You know, in the past, I remember the last election when he was debating with Hillary Clinton. They were talking about immunity for gun manufacturers. And she was saying, we have to allow them to be sued when these things happen, when some mass murderer takes a firearm and one out of how many million gun owners does something atrocious with it. You have to be able to sue the gun company and put them out of business. Bernie said that will essentially end gun manufacturing in this country. And I'm not willing to do that. Right. Boy, has he changed his tune since then, because he went on and said that protecting the gun manufacturers with his track record as a politician, those were bad votes. That's what he came out and said very recently. So we don't have any friends of the Second Amendment for sure on the other side. You know, on another note, yeah, like I mentioned, Mrs. G has been recovering. and Yeah, glad been, to hear she's doing better. Uh, thank God she's doing better. Yes, yes. But she's been finding ways to occupy her time. I mm-hmm. told you folks a couple of weeks ago, she's been watching a lot of North Korea documentaries. <laughs> but she started arguing with people about politics on social media. It's become something that's uh, kept her busy, and frankly, she's enjoying it. And 
she got into some disagreement with somebody on the computer. Okay. And supported the she just basically supported the president. That was the disagreement. And then the other person Such a came horrible out, thing to do, by the way. Right. <laughs> you, you shall be banished from the social media if you represent the president. Right. But the guy was like so, something along the lines of, Oh yeah, you, you stupid Trump supporter. Name five policies that you like about Trump. I'll wait. And then of course these people who were talking about this stuff on their side don't have any jobs, right? Right. So three minutes later when she hadn't responded. He said, oh, see, crickets, you don't know what you're talking about and there's no policies you could think of. So you know what, Chris? I thought about it and I said, we should really talk about some of the things that we think were positive that Trump has done during his presidency and keep in mind that he has been fought every step of the way. Right. right? Yeah, good point. Yeah. The, through this whole uh, Mueller investigation, uh, right. you know, first it was the collusion yeah. and then the impeachment. It's a wonder this guy has gotten anything done. He's got the, the House who's uh, not supporting him through this uh, second couple of years of the first term. But let's talk about some of the things that we think might be positive. I, sure, first of sure. all, I think things like the tax cuts, right? Mm -hmm. When good, hardworking Americans are seeing more money in their paycheck. How could you boo that, right? Boo, no, I don't want that money. Take it back. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see anybody on the other side saying that we should cut taxes. Do you? Uh, no, not not really, no. It, uh, you know, and it is nice to see that change because, uh, you know, really we want the government to be more efficient. And it seems like he's moving in that direction for sure. Well, it seems like with Republicans, they want tax cuts because they want more they don't want to uh, anything free. They just want in return to keep some of their own money instead of yeah, giving it to yeah, the government. Sure. I'll decide what to do with that money mm -hmm. and I'll make wise decisions for myself. Whereas the folks on the left are saying, oh no, we're going to make people pay more money, but we'll give you more stuff. Right. Trust right. us. It'll mm -hmm. be worth it, it's right? It'll work out in the end, of yeah, course. It'll, yeah. it'll work yeah. out. We're yeah. going to give you the best value for your money. You don't mm -hmm. know what the best value for your money is. Let us make that decision for you. I think that's one of the fundamental differences that we see on the right and left, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, does it come down to more personal responsibility versus more reliance on the government? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has to. In, in general, I think we need to move more in that direction. Unfortunately, I, I think uh, some of the folks these days uh, don't really see that, you know, and they want the government just to take care of them or, or provide for them when really we need to take more ownership over certain things, for sure. We also see things like the First Step Act, right, that he signed into law, criminal justice reform. Right. And pardoned Alice Johnson, later been in prison for how long yeah, over, yeah. I think it was a marijuana offense. Right. You would think that people on the left would celebrate something like that and say, you know what? We can all agree that this was wrong. That's way too long of a sentence for what happened. And the fact that he pardoned her, uh, that's it was a, a, a clemency that he provided. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a good idea. Uh, you know, thank you for doing that. That was a good thing. But no, they can't even mention that as something good, can they? No, and it's interesting. I, I've actually noticed recently where they've been er erroneously discrediting him. Uh, for example, I was watching something yesterday about the, uh, you know, the children being held at the borders, and it was like a number of a hundred thousand, and it actually came from the Obama administration, and apparently he's reduced <laughs> it by like thirty percent. So oh, it's, like, so, you know, oh. it's, it's going in the right direction, but they don't. They pulled the story instead of retracting it. So, and, and they had actually yeah. shown photos, I believe, of. The Obama administration right. exactly. as well. And yeah. said, Look what this animal is doing <laughs> to everybody. And that was one of the responses that this rat skunk knucklehead right, provided right. to Mrs. G. He was like, oh, I guess you like kids in cages, right? Oh, That's was what it you one? Like. Okay, perfect, yeah. yeah. Hey, your precious Obama. How about yeah. with, uh, you know, repealing Obamacare? I know that we don't have a replacement in place right now, but people aren't getting – 
quote unquote taxed right. if they don't choose to have health insurance. Isn't that true? Yeah, I believe they did change that. Uh, so they're not part, forcing part of the people tax anymore. cuts. Right, right. What about the farm bill? That's something else that's out there, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember we had the, uh, you know, Matt up, up in New Hampshire on about the farming and some of the things going on with there. So hopefully uh, there'll be some positive changes in that direction as well. One of the things with the farm bill had to do with the CBD oil and took a. The CBD off of the controlled substance list. Did you oh. hear about that? Oh, no, I didn't hear about that. Okay. Yeah. That's Apparently, news. it's not the, the part of the plant, and I'm no marijuana expert or scientist or anything. Yeah. But apparently, they're talking about the, the parts of the, the substance that's derived from hemp. I think the cannabinoids or something. Like cannabinoids, that. Yeah, right? Cannabinoids, yeah. Uh, yeah. Derived from the hemp portion. Right. So we're mm-hmm. not talking about a portion that's geared towards being psychoactive. Exactly, right. And people are finding healing properties in this mm-hmm. stuff. So. I mean, people are taking so many drugs as it is for mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. different ailments. So uh, that's uh, something that would uh, potentially increase the farming industry, right? Yeah, it's a great thing. I, I've seen where it's helped children with uh, seizures, actually, uh, where they use the CBD oil, the non-psychoactive uh, components of the plant. Yeah, so some good things going on there. And definitely uh, we need to look more into that as a society, I think. Yeah, maybe we'll do a program on that. Yeah, Write us in idea. if you're interested in hearing more about that. I, I would like to get some, uh, get an expert on this program to talk a little bit about the healing properties of that plant in general because sure, it's something sure. that we don't hear about a whole lot on the mainstream. And mm-hmm. I don't know if there has been a lot of misinformation over the years. It's entirely possible. I think there has been, unfortunately, yes. What else can we come up with, Trump? What about boosting our military, providing mm-hmm. our military with more mm-hmm. funding? Taking uh, better uh, care of the vets as well. Taking is, better uh, care of – boo, <laughs> right now, I don't like that policy, right, boo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, even coming out and stating policies – uh, and and his platform, such as protecting the unborn, something like that. And I know that people on the other side mm-hmm. get mad at that. But we've gotten to such a stage where you've got people talking about how you're going to deliver the baby and then make a decision, right? Having an abortion until the mm-hmm. minute the baby mm-hmm. is delivered. Yeah, I think that's absolutely atrocious. Yeah, and somebody needs mm-hmm. to say something about that, right? Yeah, I, I agree. And if they tried to do something, at least on the federal level, like they've done in places like New York, where they're all standing up and giving an ovation that they've extended the amount of time that they can have an abortion, right? Right until right, the point right. of delivery, as long as certain criteria are met. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that happened on the federal level, we know that our president would not sign that into law, right? right we, we'd have we'd have a veto, although it doesn't look like with the makeup of Congress that it would happen anyway. Mm-hmm. What else you got on Trump? What do you like about Trump? Well, I mean, certainly the economy has gone up quite a bit. It's pretty amazing, you know, where the market is uh, these days. Yeah, right. (laughs) We don't like a good economy. I don't want my 401k to go up. Uh, That that was actually all Obama, Chris. Right. Well, that's, you know, three or four years later here. I guess that's why it's going up. It's still Obama. Even though during the election, everybody knew for sure that if he were elected, Mm -hmm. the economy would go in the toilet immediately, right? Yeah, that's exactly it, what happened. It was right? going to yeah. crash. Yeah, if he gets that. it, just mm-hmm. me, if he gets mm-hmm. in, the economy is going to crash instantly. Um, but apparently, Obama's policies and procedure are so ironclad. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right? they're, they're so robust that not even <laughs> Trump could take it down with his poor policies <laughs> right. regarding the economy. Yeah, for example, Mike, I was recently looking at uh, WhiteHouse.gov. You know, I like to deal in facts, as we know. And, uh, you know, on there it was listing that almost 4 million uh, jobs have been created since the election. Uh, More Americans are now unemployed than ever recorded before in history. 
Uh, he's created more than 400,000 manufacturing jobs, which we know is great for the country. And a, a real nice and important fact I'd like to point out as well, uh, for African Americans, Hispanics, and Asian Americans, uh, they're uh, the lowest uh, rate ever recorded right now for, for unemployment. So that's boo, pretty, pretty <laughs> boo, <we don't laughs> all like bad that. stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. It's just like, you know, these are the facts, folks. I will tell you, uh, I am disappointed about the bump stocks and the Second Amendment. I really wish that he would have protected that more. Maybe some of his constituents can reach out and sort of make that an issue because the Second Amendment is going to be at stake in this next election. There's no yeah, two ways about no, you're it. Right. But on the bright side, he did appoint two Supreme Court justices in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh that appear to support our Second Amendment. We know Gorsuch supports our Second Amendment. There's no two ways about it. He's been very adamant about that in his writings so far. All right. And he's been vo very vocal about his support for our Second Amendment. So I'm confident that that was a decision that will mm -hmm. uh, protect our Second Amendment. Yeah. Huge accomplishment. Did you guys hear about uh, Upchuck Schumer? What he what he recently did? What did he do? Well, what happened? Uh, he uh, pretty much he threatened the Supreme Court justices. Let me let me play some. Uh, oh yeah, pull it up. Some clip for you. This is uh, it's from Real Clear Politics, but their source is YouTube. It's just embedded. So inside the walls of this court, let me see the video. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments, as you know, for the first major abortion right cases since right. justices right. Kavanaugh. Right to kill babies, right? Mm. Uh, he's giving the thumbs down. That's that's like the equivalent of the applause sign. Yeah. Telling the audience what to do a little bit there. Yeah. We know what's at stake. Here's what you need Over to the think. last three years, women's reproductive rights <laughs> have rubber, 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 rubber rights. in a that's way awful. we haven't seen in modern history. Hmm. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas. Republican they don't want to kill babies anymore. Women. <laughs> All women. He didn't give the thumbs down, nobody booed. <laughs> right, right, right. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will oh. pay the price. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's pretty serious right now. I'm shaking like a leaf. Yeah, look at him. You won't know what hit you. Why is he smiling so much? That's some interesting verbiage there. Yeah. You won't know what hit you. You'll pay the price. Sounds right. like a mob. <laughs> you go forward with these awful decisions. The bottom line is very simple. We will stand with the American people. We will stand Except with American women. Yeah, right, that's right. Right. We will tell and President the Trump and Senate <laughs> we'll stand Republicans with them. They're not real Americans. stack the court with right-wing ideologues that you're going to be gone in November and you will never be able to do what you're trying to do now ever, ever again. Hey, you'll never be able to protect these babies. You're gone in November. What's a schmutz on <laughs> Do you guys see that? We are here to send these folks a message, not on our watch. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, my friends, are we going to let Republicans undo a woman's right to choose? <laughs> right to kill a baby. Are we going to stay quiet as they try to turn back the clock? Apparently not. Are we going to give up or waver when things get tough? No. No. I, We're going to stand together in one voice and take a stand on behalf of women and families we throughout women the country. We women want to sleep with everybody We're and not be responsible. all these <laughs> attempts to <laughs> restrict a woman's right to choose and we right to will right. win. Uh, uh, 
Cook County State. Oh, How's that a win? That was one of the yeah. This is one of those yeah. weak sauce speeches yeah, I've ever right, seen in my right. entire life. <laughs> Followed by an autoplay. You yeah, better watch out. You gotta pay the price. <laughs> Wouldn't even be convincing in a movie, right? <laughs> oh my goodness! Nobody would take that guy. Seriously. Uh, here's the thing, though. They you hear him constantly framing this as the the right to choose, and we're not saying that people shouldn't have the right to choose. Mm-hmm. You just shouldn't have the right to choose to kill a baby. That's all. <laughs> You can choose lots of things. Yeah. Can't choose mm-hmm. to kill a baby. Right. That's like a hard. Bad, <laughs> bad choice, I think. I mean, I think the choice ought to come down to, uh, you know, guys have the choice to keep it in their pants and girls have the choice to keep their legs shut. Oh, you, you have the choice to be a responsible human being, right? But choices also have consequences, don't they? Absolutely. So for that skunk rat liberal... Who wanted to talk trash to Mrs. G? Oh, we'll wait for the accomplishments. There you go. And if you don't like it, you're going to be very, very sad come November. Very sad. (laughs) For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G in the morning with The Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. You know, we've heard these candidates talk a whole lot about socialized medicine and Medicare for all. So we wanted to get a little bit further in depth, talk to one of our medical experts on this program. We've got a very special guest back with us, Anthony Robertson, who's a physician's assistant, friend of the show, and one of the medical experts we consult with. Anthony, are you with us? Yes, I am, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us one more time. You know, we hear a lot in the news about these politicians on the left pushing Medicare for all and things of that nature. And people will point to the Medicare system we presently have. And some of these older folks who have Medicare might speak well of it, say that this is a good thing. Um, Is that true? Uh, A lot of folks who have Medicare uh, really do like it. And there's also... Um, there's supplemental plans that people can choose to purchase to, uh, you know, kind of get a higher, higher level of, of care and accessibility and, and cheaper prescription benefits, things like that. Um, you know, but, uh, anybody over 62 can qualify, uh, for Medicare. And most, most that I've talked to anyway, or most patients I've seen actually, actually are pretty happy with it. So why does this work for people in that situation uh, as opposed to if we perhaps expanded it to everybody? You know, the the biggest thing is, um, you know, when we start expanding it to a a vast, uh, wide variety of people, we start running into a lot of other problems that you don't have when you have a much smaller, um, much smaller population and a much uh, much more homogenous population, uh, you tend to not run into as many expenses. You tend to not run into as many problems. Um, you know, with the, with the current Medicare system, you know, obviously you have to be of a certain age to get it. And, uh, you know, again, there are certain benefits. So people that want just the, just the minimum and they, you know, it, it works very similar to, uh, to an HMO where they just tell you, here's who your doctor is. Here's where you can go for treatment. And here's your options. Um, you know, the, the more you pay for, the more options you have to go out of network. So it, it works for that group of, of patients as long as they're okay with staying within a very confined parameter of what kind of options they may have. So you've got, for it sounds like what you're saying, you've got these people who they've been paying in their entire life. 
And then they've got for a smaller period of time, they're using this program and it's working for that. But that's not the way it's going to be if they implement what they call Medicare for all. Is calling it Medicare for all misleading? Uh, very misleading because it would not be anywhere near the, the standard of quality that it is now. Uh, for the longest time, and I mean, politicians on both sides of the aisle, you hear them, you hear them constantly talk about, uh, you know, making sure that the seniors have quality Medicare. Uh, once you start expanding that out where every single person is getting it, including people who've never paid a dime into it, never plan to, uh, you're going to start seeing quality drop. Anytime you start having to manage something that's on that big of a scale and you expand the scale, uh, you know, multiple times over, you're going to start having worsening problems, lessening quality, things start falling through the cracks. And, you know, overall, you, you have a lot of people who are going to be very dissatisfied. So is it fair to say that just because this is working with this smaller population and this select group of people that it's not necessarily going to work out that same way if we try to do it for everybody? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, just look at just look at the way uh, look at the way some of these European countries that they try to they try to say are the models for healthcare. They have a population that is a fraction of the U.S. and in fact a fraction of just some of our individual states. Uh, and they're also most of these other countries, especially over in Europe and those areas where they try to use them as just the model of all this. Um, if you look at it again, they have a very homogenous population of people. You have people that are, that are all on very similar diets, very similar health histories, similar, similar races and ethnicities. So there's a lot of other health problems they don't have to worry about. Mm. Um, but in that, People don't realize they also lose a lot of freedoms. Uh, for instance, freedom to choose your own uh, health care provider, to say, I don't like this doctor. I'd like to seek a second opinion. Well, when you're on these socialized programs, you don't have that option. Uh, just, I mean, just recently, and I'm sure most of your listeners would probably remember just recently, uh, within the last, I believe it was two years over in the U.K., there was a case with a kid named Alfie Evans who, uh, you know, he, he had a he had this terminal illness and his parents said, look, we want to keep searching. We want to keep fighting. We want to see if there's anything, you know, that can help our child. And the U.K. essentially sentenced him to death and said he's, you know, he's not worth our time and our money. Uh, even when the parents wanted to try to come to America to try to get better health care or try to get on a new trial medication or try anything, uh, the government over there stops them from being able to come. So, so the government you know, makes that realize, decision for you. Exactly. The government has placed a value on your life. And so while all these people think this is great, all these people are going to be able to finally get health care, well, what's really going to happen is you're going to get very poor quality Everything gets divvied out, and if you if they feel that you've used up your share, you're not worth it. They uh, again, the government is placing a price tag on your life and saying, "We believe you are worth X amount of dollars." And once you've hit that dollars or that amount of time or anything, sorry, you're done. Now it sounds like you've already gotten into some of the downsides of 
socialized medicine. But one thing that always comes to my mind is if our healthcare system is really so awful compared to some of these other places, why are people trying to come to the United States to get this care as opposed to vice versa? You know, that's a good question. I, I very seldom have heard of anybody going to other countries to get health care, except for, um, you know, occasionally you'll hear of you'll hear of people who say, oh, I went to Mexico to go get this this surgery. Right. Cheap plastic Literally. surgery. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cheap plastic yeah. surgery. I'm heading usually. down next week. I, I don't know if yeah. surgery is something cheap you want to do on the cheap, surgery. though. Right. Exactly. And I've literally never met, and I've met, I've honestly, throughout my career, I've met a handful of people who've gone that route. And I can honestly say I've not met a single one who was happy with that decision uh, more than a year out. Mm. Hey, you're looking at that, that uh, a guy with a facelift and you're like, you have to, you have to pretend like he looks normal, right? Yeah. <laughs> look what oh, they did to me. Well, it looks great. It looks great. <laughs> you yeah, can't I, say I, you look I, like you got hit with a bag of bees. <laughs> Yeah, I, I promise you I've sterilized down my van. Now get in and let me cut you open. Right. <laughs> uh, you have any training on this now? But YouTube's uh, great these days, right? Right, right, right. Hold on, the internet's not working. <laughs> now, now, we hear stories of people who perhaps need something like an MRI or some kind of tests in these other countries where they have socialized medicine and they can't get one or they can't get one for a very long period of time. They got to wait months. Why is this the case in places like Canada, for example? Well, it's the case because when, when everybody can get one because they demand it and everyone has to pay for it, you start having very long lines back up. Um, you know, and, and, there's uh, Stephen Crowder did a really good video on this a while back because I, I know you probably know he was born in Canada and he went back undercover, essentially him and one of his other co-hosts. And they decided to see, you know, how how easily can we get into this, quote unquote, free Canadian health care and just to set up care with a primary care physician, because unless you want to go through the ER, uh, you have to get everything done through your primary care. So in order to do that, they said they told him it was going to be several months just to even get in. Um, so they said, well, if you need something, just go through the ER. So he went through the ER. They said, oh, it's going to be a minimum of an eight hour wait. And that's just how it is every day. Wow. Wow. Uh, mm. You know, I, I've met several Canadians and you've actually I think you've had one on uh, that was was born up there in Canada and, and said the same thing. It was you know, the wait times are atrocious and people just start getting used to it. And they say, yeah, it's great. But really, there's a lot of complications that can happen from adding on that additional wait time. So what uh, would the approval process look like if you're if you're in this kind of socialized system? Now, how would the government have its decisions in playing their role in your health care in getting this type of approval? Well, that just means that Again, you have to go the you have to go the long way to do it. There is no, this person's got an emergent case, and we'd like to speed things up. It's no, you're you're going to wait in line. I'm sorry, there's 500 other people ahead of you, so we're going to see all 500 of those first because they were here first. And it doesn't matter if you've got cancer and they've only got some pain in their elbow. Uh, we're still going to get to those people in the order that they were, you know, put on the list to get mm. the scan done. And if we have an opening pop up, we might try to get you in, but 
you know, so sorry, it may not happen. Uh, we always, we all know that socialism is just the stepping stone for communism, and we have a socialist running for uh, the primaries, trying to be the president of the United States today. We know it's a stepping stone for communism, and we see what's going on right now in China with the crisis and the coronavirus. How would a socialist healthcare system look with that type of an outbreak? I mean, it would look pretty much the same way. They're going to, uh, they're going to scramble when it first starts. They're going to try to try to figure out how to contain it. But really, when you when you limit access and you limit uh, clinics and and of course in a socialized system, you also have very limited number of healthcare providers. Uh, just because in that sort of a system, there's no incentive based pay. Uh, so why is someone going to want to, for instance? Uh, you know, I work in a surgical clinic and, and why would somebody want to work a 16 hour day and add on an extra surgery and do all this extra stuff with no added benefit? Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those that, you know, for each person, there's, there's different incentive and, and, and the overwhelming majority of people who work in healthcare really enjoy being able to help other people. Um, but I can tell you, you know, at the end of an incredibly long day, Yes, there is some driving force of saying, hey, I still want to keep staying and helping people. But the the other big force that also keeps people going and lets them see more patients and want to get extra work done is to say, if I do this, I'm, I can get also get paid more. Hmm. In a socialized system, which I, you know, in the past I had worked at a community-based healthcare center, and when Obamacare came out, it killed us. It, it almost doubled our workload we had the same number of healthcare providers in clinic, and suddenly we had twice as many patients trying to get in the doors every day. So it became a, a nightmare coming into work every day, not to mention all the new regulations they had checked off. So, again, you have that kind of system and something like coronavirus breaks out, you're going to have a very difficult situation on your hands because also you have people who've been trained to say, I have this health care, I have to just go to the emergency room for everything. Mm. Or I have to go to my primary care. They're, they're routed through a certain way where you may start infecting other people unnecessarily. Mm. And it does seem like this kind of a system would ultimately benefit the elites. And what I mean is that whole good for thee but not good for me attitude that we often see when it comes to things like our Second Amendment – and how the congressmen went back and exempted themselves from Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in places like Canada, somebody like Justin Trudeau has to wait all those weeks and go through all that red tape in order to get care for himself? Oh, not a chance. <laughs> not a chance at all. The, the good news with a privatized system is that puts your everyday citizen on the same playing field as your high up government officials, if they say, hey, this is important enough to me and I can pay for this and I can do it, they can get in. The thing that people don't realize here when they throw out these sob stories of these people who just couldn't afford anything, really, if you there are very few times in the United States where somebody going going broke because of medical costs had to happen. Um, the majority of the time. These cases you hear are kind of stories about cancers and things like that. Uh, people don't seem to realize if you have if you have cancer, or you have any any terminal illness whatsoever, you have any kind of cancer, 
All you have to do is go into your state mm-hmm. Medicaid office with a diagnosis and you qualify. Mm. There are clinics all over the place that are set on what's called a sliding scale fee, meaning that patients pay on income base if they don't have insurance. And most of those clinics cap the clinic fee at 20 to $30, and that includes visit and labs and all that. Some of them charge, you know, $10 for labs. Shame on them. Um, but, you know, there's, there is care available. For anyone that says, you know, for instance, pregnant mothers that can't get health insurance, literally all you need is, again, go to one of those community health centers, go to the health department, 100% free if you are uninsured, and you get a, you get a test that shows, yes, you are pregnant and it is confirmed. You go into your state Medicaid office and you can get pregnancy Medicaid at absolutely zero cost to you. And that, that cares for the mother and the baby through the entire process of prenatal care, through labor and delivery, um, postpartum care. And the child, uh, in every state here, the child, uh, can stay on state Medicaid if needed based on the parent's income or ability to get, get insurance, things like that. Children are covered until they're 18 or 19 years old in pretty much every state. Wow. So, again, there's a lot of stories. There's also, people tend to forget, until Obamacare passed, there were a lot of different drug and pharmaceutical companies, a lot of different hospitals and clinics uh, that would do a lot of charity work. And, of course, you never really heard about that in the media. You never really hear about that on these platforms, especially on the left. Uh, they never really want to mention the fact that, you know, prior to Obamacare, drug companies were giving away millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of free drugs, free services, things like that every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very common for a patient without insurance to be able to say, I, I went into a clinic, I paid my $20 to get seen, which, by the way, is way less than most people's copay to go in and get seen. Mm-hmm. And then they got to sign up for receiving free drugs based on income. So all these drugs that the doctor prescribes them, they got to sign up and get them for free or a greatly reduced cost that, again, was far less than what most people pay for their insurance copay for their drugs at the pharmacy. And why is that stopped? Once Obamacare passed. Sorry, what were you saying? So why don't we see that anymore? Why is that stopped? That stopped once Obamacare was rolled out and essentially these companies were forced to start uh, giving out certain drugs at certain prices. They were forced to start accepting, uh, you know, insurance companies had to start accepting patients no matter what. Um, You know, there was a lot of different kickback from that that people didn't anticipate. Essentially, these these companies that were giving away a lot of freebies uh, because they were able to make it up on people that had really good insurance that would pay their company's top dollar, well, now that they're being forced to give stuff away, they're much more reluctant to, to give away any additional stuff. So you saw these patients, and, and personally in the clinic that I was in, the community health center, we saw we saw patients, uh, and we had a, a person whose job it was specifically to sign these patients up for their, for their free or reduced medications. Um, and she went from being busy all day, every day, signing people up, getting them their meds, to only having a few people per week because most drug companies pulled almost all their medications. They pulled almost all their free programs, all their free testing because it wasn't worth it. They were being gouged by this socialized or or quasi socialized program 
and, and, you know, people don't seem to understand when you start making things mandatory and, and again, anyone that thinks that, oh, if it's mandatory, the drug companies are, are going to be forced to make medications affordable for everyone. Well, again, it's it does you no good if things are more affordable when they run out of medications. All right. The time. Mm-hmm. If they don't exist. Mm-hmm. That's that's that true. Does nobody any good. That's true. Sounds to me what you're saying is it's sort of like suppose I had a sandwich and you came over to me and said, Mike G, I'm hungry. Can I have half a sandwich? Yes, politely, and I'm in a good mood, and I give you half a sandwich. But if you come over and you say, Mike G, I'm hungry, so I'm taking half your sandwich, and there's nothing you could do about it, I'm going to say, get out of here, you skunk. You're not getting any of my sandwich. Does that sound about right? Exactly. Or or, or if you do reluctantly give something up, it's going to be much less than what you probably would have given on your own. Right, right. Here, you can have a crumb, you skunk. <laughs> now, while we got you on the phone, we've got to ask, we've got this whole coronavirus thing in the news. Is there anything you could tell us about that? You are our medical expert on this program. So at this point, um, you know, there's the, the biggest advice I can give people is turn your TVs off. Uh, <laughs> but keep the radio on, right? Keep the radio on. But otherwise, turn the radio off. <laughs> but now the, the biggest thing is, is misinformation and fear that's being spread. Fear, fear sells newspapers. Fear gets people to watch the evening news, which sells ads on the news. So, you know, it's, it's a scary thing because people aren't really aware of it. And they hear these horror stories from China. Um, you know, China's very poor healthcare system is what got them into that position in the first place, really. Um, if you look at who is dying from it overall, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tracking of not just death numbers, but what population is dying. And, and for the most part, it's, uh, there's a few that were very young, but mostly it is people who are older, 65 and older. Uh, those who are younger that died from it, most of them had other underlying health problems when it was actually looked into. Um, the biggest problem, again, was China not not wanting it to get out in the media, so they didn't handle it appropriately as far as quarantining it. Now in the U.S., we've got, I think they're up to 99 total cases. The overwhelming majority of those have been in coastal states or states where they have a big, big international ports um, for shipping or airports. Um, you know, the, there's far, far, far more cases of the flu every year and deaths from the flu than there is for coronavirus. Now, the percentage of people killed by coronavirus, again, it's a little bit higher than flu, but we have to look at who is dying and how. Uh, one of the places that recently got hit with coronavirus in the U.S. was a nursing home. So of the 10 people who have died from coronavirus in the U.S., out of 99 confirmed cases at this point, sounds like a terrible death rate, and it is. Mm. But if you put, I mean, if you unleash the flu in a nursing home, the same thing is going to happen. Gotcha. You may have four or five people right there. Mm. So should people just take uh, regular flu precautions, just be on alert? For the most part, the the best advice uh, that's that's going around, and it is true, is you you don't really need to panic about anything. Wash your hands. Avoid touching your face. Essentially, take the same precautions you should always be taking anyway every flu season. Hmm. Um, You know, people are buying up masks and stuff left and right, and it's not really going to do anybody any good. The regular masks you're going to buy from the drugstore are not going to help. 
Um, you know, they're coming out. There's all these companies that are now coming out with sanitizing wipes and stuff like that that's proven to kill coronavirus. Great. You know, wipe things down. Um, but again, most of the cases in the U.S., they've been able to directly uh, trace back to either people who've traveled to areas that were at high risk or people who have had direct person-to-person contact with people who were over in a highly infected area or who already had it. So again, your risk of catching it when you go to the mall or go to a baseball game or anything like that is minimal. So so we should be prepared and take precautions, but don't lose any sleep over this. Sound fair? Yeah, I would I wouldn't lose any sleep over it and I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about spending your life savings stocking up on face masks and you know, everything else, it's, again, it's, it's not going to do a whole lot of good. Um, I, I saw something today that, you know, down here, uh, down here in the South, it sticks a little more. It said, uh, wash your hands. Like you just cut up a bunch of jalapenos and you're about to have to take out your contacts. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. Well, Anthony with that, thank you so much for joining us one more time. We hope to have you back on the program again soon. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G. in the morning with The Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. Now, getting on the topic of the coronavirus, we've seen a lot of this in the news, and a lot of our listeners are wondering, how could we be prepared to protect ourselves in this kind of a situation? We've got a very special guest with us on the line, Chris Christensen. He's an expert on the matter. He's going to tell us a little bit about what our listeners can do to protect themselves and protect their loved ones. Chris, are you with us? I'm here. Chris, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's been quite some time, long overdue. Well, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what brought you into this field? Okay, so I have a background in the military. I was a force reconnaissance marine, also a scout sniper. Um, on the civilian side, I teach emergency preparedness. I've done so at multiple universities um, in California and a few other places. In addition, to that, I've worked as both on the security side for consulting, for planning for anything from active shooters to man-made and natural disasters. This is something like I've been passionate about since I was a kid. And so I've, I've worked with, you know, everyone, basically a, many defense companies along with other entities such as CERT and rescue services that, to help them in, in contingency planning. So, Chris, with somebody with your background, looking at this whole entire situation, what are some of your initial impressions of what's going on? So, personally, I think this is something that's completely overblown. Um, I think with a little bit of research, if the average person te- took a step away from some of the media around this particular outbreak and actually went in and did some research, even just simply going on the CDC site, they will learn that this is something that is not even close to as bad as people are making it out to be, most specifically a lot of these mainstream news sources. Now, can you understand why some people would be skeptical of taking their advice from an organization like the CDC? I can understand why there is some hesitancy, um, but the fact is is that both the CDC and the World Health Organization are organizations that are designed to protect the public. And the thing that I always tell people to use is, along with research, is common sense. 
And when I say common sense, it, it simply comes down to looking and researching what the coronavirus is, realizing this is a common cold that is constantly circulating, and then looking at the numbers and comparing it to things that we can actually understand, such as influenza, and how they compare just in this short time frame. So have we seen situations similar to this in the past? Absolutely. Um, it's uh, I don't believe in coincidence, but anyone listening can research this themselves, that when we look at an election year cycle, there's seems to be an outbreak every single time the election year comes around. And I'll give you a few examples, Mike. In 2004, we had SARS. In 2008, we had avian. Uh, in 2010, we had swine flu. In 2012, we had MERS. In 2014, we had Ebola. In 2016, we have Zika. In 2018, we had Ebola again. And lo and behold, 2020, a very big election year in our country, we have the coronavirus. So we can basically expect this sort of thing if the year is an even number, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I think that's a, a, an easy way to sum it up. And I, I think it's it's one of those things that it's always good to have a boogeyman around. You know, it really helps put people and distract them from, from certain things. And without getting too far into the political realm, I, I think that whenever you, you need to distract people from what's going on, you create a boogeyman. Well, it's certainly gotten its share of attention in the media. But thinking about it from a different standpoint, if you're somebody who wants to take matters into your own hands and simply be prepared, it seems to me that being prepared would help you uh, in many different situations, right? So what measures would you recommend our listeners take if they want to be prepared for something that, that would potentially impact them or their loved ones? So first and foremost, this is just general information for any type of preparedness, but having, I would say, seven days of just food and water on hand that you can rotate through um, in case something happens beyond simply this, it could be any sort of man-made or natural disaster is always a good estimate. You know, I always think about situations here in the U S that we've had and, you know, it took FEMA three days to get water to the Superdome. Mm. And so that makes you really wonder how prepared we are overall as a society. And so it's always good to have stuff just kind of tucked away. That way it gives you peace of mind. So what kind but of food are we talking about here? What kind of food do you want to have on hand? Well, a lot of people like to go with this freeze-dried stuff, which is fine. I've lived off of this stuff. Um, I've lived off of the the rations they give you in the military, the MREs. But honestly, to keep seven days of food on hand, you want to have a fairly good, you know, storage life shelf time frame. But you want stuff that you'll actually eat mm. because we've gotten very comfortable in this country in a lot of ways. And I don't know how many people are going to want to eat, you know, oatmeal every single day if they're used to eating steak and eggs every single day. So for me, it's all about actually putting away stuff that you know that you'll eat and that it, you won't force yourself to go outdoors or anywhere for that matter if there actually is an issue that we're dealing with in this country. So what about masks? We see a lot of these masks flying off the shelves and you can't really get a hold of them in the stores. And if you try to get them online, the, the prices are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what do you think about those? 
so personally, I I can tell you if you once again this comes down to a little bit of research. If we go online, we look at the size of the coronavirus, and we look at what these what we refer to as you know the N95 respirator mask that you typically use for construction work or when you're dealing with um, particulate in the air. If people just go on there and look at the particle size of the actual coronavirus versus what those are rated for um, in terms of blocking, you'll realize that the effectiveness of those masks is pretty much like throwing a ping pong ball at a volleyball net. Mm. Um, Yeah, you might stop a few from going through, but the bulk of it isn't really doing anything. The real thing that people need to realize if they are generally, generally concerned about, you know, the coronavirus and, and what's going on is to limit their contact with individuals, just like they would for influenza or the, or any sort of common cold. Making sure that we're washing our hands, making sure that we're using sanitizer, hand, uh, hand sanitizer effectively, um, and trying to minimize the amount of things we touch that other people are touching, such as railings, doorknobs, desks, things of that nature. So even having, you know, wipes or lights or something to wipe down surface areas and doing that more regularly um, is going to be a lot more effective than wearing a mask around. I feel that people wear these masks and it makes them feel better, but it's not actually doing anything to prevent them from, you know, actually catching anything, what they need to do is be conscious of not touching their eyes, their mouth, their lips, things of that nature. What do you think about wearing a Make America Great Again hat? I think that'll keep a certain amount of people away from you, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I think I think if uh, if you want to keep people away, especially in some of the areas here in Philly, that's a great way to minimize contact. <laughs> no more infected liberals coming around, right? Unless they try to drag uh, grab the thing off your head, which they've been known to do, do occasionally, haven't they? <laughs> and that's where the Lysol comes in hand. I, you know, if you don't have mace, a good spray of Lysol will definitely in the face will definitely get people to, to back off. So it sounds like you're you're recommending just getting some regular household cleaning products and keeping those on hand as part of being prepared. Is that easy enough? Well, in, in, in all actuality, you know, just making sure that we're practicing good sanitation techniques in our lives every single day is one of the best things that we can do. I can't tell you how many people I know that stock ammunition, guns, food, but don't have the basics for disposing of waste or understand how to dispose of waste properly should their plumbing system shut down in an emergency. Um, you know, having having just those basic practices and knowing what you need to do with that puts you so far ahead of the game of most people because most people just don't live in as clean as conditions as they think they do. So what are some specific products? If somebody wanted to go to the store right now and spend a hundred bucks on getting these types of cleaning products and practicing these types of, uh, you know, hygienic practices, what would they get? What, what do you, what's on the list for them? So if it was me, I, I really think that those Lysol wipes are great and very easy and effective to use. You can wipe down a very large surface area with Lysol wipes or any sort of hand sanitizer wipes. I think having, um, plat, you know, any sort of nitrile or surgical gloves is another thing to stock on hand. Just so if you do have to contact, come in contact with any sort of surface or any sort of debris or even people in some cases, that you have a barrier that you know is actually going to protect you against sweat, contact, 
anything of that nature. And when it comes to those, everyone likes to go tactical black, but you can't see stuff on black, such as blood. Mm. Um, so I always recommend going with either the white or the purple gloves so that you can actually see when there's residue, when there's things on there and making sure that we change them out um, after we've come in contact with people because the last thing we want to do is forget that we're wearing them and then do the same thing that we do with our bare hands touching our face. Having Purell or hand sanitizer just on hand, once again, having, you know, going to some of these larger stores and purchasing that just to keep along with your other emergency supplies, not just for you, but when you have people who come into your house or you have people around that might need it themselves, you have a nice amount to share with other people. And these are all, this is all stuff that you can get from the dollar store for, for very, very cheap. Mm. And also just basic cleaning supplies like bleach. Bleach is one of those things that's commonly overlooked that you can mix with water and use to spray down surfaces as well. Along with, you know, white vinegar is highly effective as well. And you can use that for a myriad of purposes, um, in your emergency preparedness, uh, Preps. So, so after you're done cleaning me, up, though, how, how do you dis- properly dispose of the gloves and all of the wipes and everything like that? Is that an important part of this? Absolutely. And a lot of people like to store their trash inside their homes. I always recommend and, you know, space is tight here. And so we, we know that. Um, but whenever you feel that you have come in contact with anything that might put you at risk for any sort of of contagious diseases or anything like that it's really important to one put it in a bag and seal that bag and then put that bag inside another bag and make sure that bag is part uh properly marked and labeled so that you know that it's not to be put with regular trash Mm. or disposed of in a particular way we see this all the time in hospitals with biohazard bags and if it's good for a hospital and they understand that practice, it probably means in terms of sanitation, it's good for us. So if you feel that you've become exposed, you know, make sure that you're separating those particular things, the wipes, um, anything you're using to clean up and either washing it with, you know, thoroughly to get rid of anything that might be on there or separating it from your regular garbage. One thing you mentioned is uh, coming into contact with other people, shaking hands. Is shaking hands something that's really needs to go by the wayside for this culture? Is that something we really need to do at all? <laughs> Honestly, I don't believe so. As long as after we're making that initial contact, we're we're sanitizing ourselves properly. I mean, it really this is nothing different than what you would do if you think someone had a cold, right? Right. right. And so just I wouldn't want to shake their hand though, right? (laughs) True. True. (laughs) But and maybe maybe you don't want to embarrass yourself or maybe people have some hesitancy in terms of busting out that hand sanitizer right after making a handshake with a potential business partner is the mm-hmm. example that I think of, right? You don't want them to get this impression that you think they're dirty or that they're unclean or something of that nature. So we just have to be conscious that if we do shake someone's hand, not to touch our face, not to touch our eyes, not to touch our ears, any open exposed area on our face is usually going to be a good uh, a hot zone for contact and going to increase our probability of catching something. And then once that meeting is over, once that initial contact is over, 
using the hand sanitizer, washing your hands, whatever the case may be, or whatever you have available is always going to be the best route to go. Chris, I kid you not, something like this happened to me very recently where somebody was, I was talking to somebody and it was in a professional setting and they coughed into their right hand as we were having a discussion. Mm. And at the end of the discussion, they're getting ready to go. They stick out their hand. I didn't want to shake the guy's hand. So I said, What's that hand for? Handshakes are for strangers. And I grabbed the guy in a big bear hug and sort of (laughs) (laughs) gave him a hug so I didn't have to shake the hand. I don't know if I ended up giving myself germs anyhow, but that's one mechanism. That's all good and well until he coughs on the back of your neck, right? (laughs) But I'm not not touching the back of my neck. It might potentially touch my face though, right? (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. How conscious are you of what you touch throughout your day? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, that's a good point. Maybe we could come up with some kind of invention to prohibit all this, to prevent all this stuff from happening. Maybe we make fake hands, right? Where they're, there's <laughs> there latex or some kind of a cover, but they look just like hands. Hey, the Secret the, Service uses them, Mike. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> fake hands where we can make, shake hands. Right, they right. make these already, Mike. They they, do. They're called prosthetics. And prosthetics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Maybe a patriotic fist bump of some sort, uh, like yeah, an air fist bump. Maybe we can start a new trend. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? There you go. <laughs> If we look throughout history, everyone had had uh, some interesting handshakes throughout the years when we go back hundreds of years and stuff. So, you know, I remember back in the day, the knights used to greet themselves by grabbing each other's forearms rather than shaking each other's hands. So maybe we'll we'll go back to something like that. And that way it's only a skin on clothing contact. <laughs> well, that's one thing. But then you got people who sneeze into their, their arm crease, right? They sneeze right into the elbow. You'd be true. grabbing all their snot germs. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can just switch everything over to, to high UV lighting and that way we're just constantly sanitized everywhere we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's certainly one way to go about it. So, Chris, excellent information here today. Any parting words for our listeners? Um, I think the big thing that we all need to remember when something like that, this comes out and it's getting blown out of proportion is ask yourself why. Why is this the big thing that they're wanting us to focus on? And that will give you the first step in looking at where we need to be looking to getting the real truth of the matter. And if you prepare once, if you have the things on hand that you need on hand, if you don't get hit with the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. you should presumably have them on hand should something else pop up, right? So it's always good to be prepared. It's always good to to engage in these practices that you're talking about with regards to cleanliness. So why not just do it all the time? That's 100%. If you do that, you'll get sick less often. Uh, You know, I'm not trying to jinx myself, knock on wood, but I haven't gotten the flu in years. And uh, I don't want to reveal how many times I've gotten my flu shot since I've been out of the military, but I've been out of the military since uh, late 2016. And uh, I haven't gotten the flu shot in about three years. So that should give you an idea. But are there any indicators that you look for, say, okay, now it's time to really be uh, alert that something's going to happen and I'm really at risk? Absolutely. Um, so the big thing that you always want to keep aware of is what your local hospitals are doing. Hmm. Okay. How overloaded they are. If you actually see your local hospitals, if there's ambulances, you know, picking up people, if you actually know people who are getting infected that live in your, what we call in the military, your area of operation, right? Hmm. And all of a sudden, The hospital systems, especially the emergency rooms, are overloaded with individuals in there. 
that's a good indicator that something is happening. Whenever you hear, you know, whenever you hear people, the time that I really think that epidemics and things are becoming a big issue is when the news sources, especially in your localized areas, are trying to make light of the situation or telling people to calm down. Because then they're trying to make sure that there's not a panic in that specific localized area. And so that's when my, you know, that's when my curiosity starts to peak and I start calling around and seeing what the hospitals, if they're overloaded, maybe turning on a radio scanner, a very good item to prep and hearing what kind of chatter is being passed over radios, because that's going to be a more direct source to act the actual, um, what I would say, the command and control center within any sort of major emergency. Now, you listed these different outbreaks for every election year. Throughout all of those times, did you know anybody who had been infected or did anybody in your uh, general operating area? Is that what you called it? Uh, area of operation or the AO as we like to call area it. Area of military. operation. Did anybody in your area of operation come down with any of these that you mentioned? Um, no. And and then one of the things that I mentioned on there is Zika. Zika is actually a pretty big issue now because we've had some changes in migratory patterns for mosquitoes. And so it's actually something that's becoming more and more common in, in the South now, such as Florida, Georgia, places like that. But even knowing a lot of people down there, I have not known an individual of all the things I listed uh, who has come down with avian flu or swine flu or Zika or Ebola for that. Do for bats that eat mosquitoes? I believe they do. What was that? Do bats eat mosquitoes? Mm-hmm. They do eat mosquitoes, but you got to remember, uh, and I don't know if you're bringing anyone else on who, who's more of a specialist. We, we don't have a bat expert. Realm. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I know a lot about a, bats. <laughs> the, the tr- you have to remember that not all viruses and and bacteria have transmission rates between insects and mammals and humans mm. and, and all those different things. So get yourself a bag of bats. Yeah. What do you think of that, right? I hope the bee, <laughs> mi- the bee <laughs> migration's okay with I, the I bag of bees. stay away from the bats because that's, that's, that was the issue with the coronavirus. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess uh, so it, as long, there's no hope for us, Chris. As long as we're not eating them. I have a question for you, Chris, regarding um, your immune system. Do you know anything that folks can do to kind of boost their immune system? I assume maybe vitamin C or things of that nature. Is there any truth behind that that you're aware of, Chris? Um, absolutely. There's there's tons of stuff out there. I, I'm a big, and I don't have any research on this particular. The, my research was that I had a, a 98-year-old lady who was very, very intelligent who told me garlic extract is the reason she hasn't gotten sick in 35 years. Hmm. And so, for some reason, I believed her, and I I take garlic extract during cold and flu season, and it's been it, it seems to help me. Maybe that's a placebo effect, but the big thing that people it, the number one way to boost your immune system is to not let it get run down, hmm. and all that simply comes down to is making sure we're getting proper rest and we're making sure we're getting proper exercise mm-hmm. and we're having a proper diet. Big Those problem in this culture, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. That's a big problem that? in this culture, isn't it? 100%. And I think that if people actually spent the time to do a health and wellness check on themselves and make sure they're doing all their due diligence in terms of staying healthy, they'll have a much lower chance of catching anything. It doesn't have to be coronavirus. We're talking any sort of uh, 
you know, virus or bacteria that's floating around there in the general public. But if we look at, you know, the, the, the lifestyle habits of most Americans, we're, we, most of us don't sleep enough. Most of us don't get enough exercise. And most of us, most of us don't eat that well. Um, so maybe a lifestyle change is the number one thing we can do in order to make sure that we don't put ourselves or make ourselves susceptible to things such as this. Well, Chris, we want to thank you again for joining us. Hopefully we'll have you back on the program again soon. We appreciate you being here. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G in the morning with The Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. You know, we had a note come on in from someone who wishes to remain anonymous, and we'll respect that. But it appears they're a professional with some expertise on this coronavirus I'm going to go ahead and read it. A coronavirus is a family of viruses with a genetic code made out of RNA. So you may hear them referred to as RNA viruses. They get their name from the Latin word for crown, which is corona, because of the way proteins in the viral membrane are studded around the outside of the virus. These proteins help the virus enter into host cells where they can replicate. There are many different types of coronaviruses, including at least four different types that cause the common cold that people get sick with each year. There have been two other zoonotic outbreaks, meaning the virus entered the human population from an animal population. One is SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, that emerged and was contained in the early 2000s. The other is MERS, Middle East Respiratory System syndrome, rather, which started causing outbreaks of respiratory illness in the Middle East in 2012. And there have been ongoing outbreaks of MERS since then. Other types of coronaviruses can only infect certain animals, but not humans. The cause of this outbreak is a coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2, and it causes the disease COVID-19. It is similar related to the original SARS coronavirus from the early 2000s. It is also a zoonotic virus, meaning it originated from animals, possibly bats. We think it may have originated in bats because a similar virus has been found in the bat population. Right now, there's a lot of media attention on the COVID-19 outbreak. The scientific and medical community appreciate that the numbers can sound really scary when all that is being reported is thousands of people getting sick and hundreds of people dying around the world. There are two important phrases you need to understand. The first one is incidence. This is the number of people that get sick with COVID-19. We don't actually know this number because there are probably far more people sick than we know. But they are not sick enough to seek medical attention, so don't get counted. Number two is mortality rate. This is the number of people that die from COVID-19 divided by the incidence. Right now, it looks like the mortality rate is around 2%, which isn't very high. In reality, the mortality rate is probably much lower because the incidence is probably much higher than we can accurately measure. Another important thing to understand is that the mortality rate is not the same across all age groups. We don't understand why yet, but children and young to middle-aged adults are not affected as severely by this virus. The mortality rate is much higher in the elderly, 
or in people who have other health problems. While we do have cases of COVID-19 here in the U.S., this is not a time to panic. If you are not a medical professional, please do not start buying face masks. The surgical masks you see most people wearing will do nothing to protect you, and the N95 masks require professional fitting and training for them to provide protection. There's currently a shortage of masks around the world, which means the physicians and nurses on the front line are being exposed. Additionally, in the scientific world, we need access to masks so we can work on the virus to help create a vaccine and understand how to fight the virus. Please don't be part of the problem contributing to the mask shortage. Below are some general precautions you can take in addition to the following CDC and WHO guidelines. General precautions, wash your hands all the time. After every human interaction, after touching public spaces such as door handles, stair rails, before food prep, after sneezing slash blowing your nose, etc. Try to avoid touching your face. Avoid shaking hands. Almost everyone will understand and appreciate this. Hey, didn't I say that? (laughs) Do not go to work if you have a fever, especially if the fever is accompanied by respiratory symptoms. Remember that this is cold and flu season. Every respiratory symptom is not COVID-19. If you are concerned, call your primary physician. Do not just go to the doctor's office or the ER. Doing so will either expose you to additional illnesses or will expose others to what you have. Most cold, flu-like illnesses can be treated with self-care at home. Well, we want to thank the person who wrote this in. That was very thoughtful and very informative and very detailed. That was, that was a lot of information to provide with us, don't you think, Chris? Yeah, it was fabulous information, very detailed and uh, and helpful, and I'm actually washing my hands right now. <laughs> you wash your hands, you turn the page. Right? You do it all the time. You turn the page, you wash your hands. I think I might be on to something yeah. with those fake hands, though, right? Uh, Maybe get a fake hand on a stick or something uh, like that. I definitely have to look into it. I mean, it seems much safer. Uh, it's much safer. You don't got to get the germs like snowflake, snowflaking tin. <laughs> This is Sammy. My hands are clean. Uh, But hearing this coming from a professional, does anything in there surprise you? Not not too much, really. You know, it seems pretty similar to, uh, you know, the regular flu and other things we've dealt with. And um, as we know from learning about this topic recently, uh, you know, folks die every year from the flu. So this could be uh, more serious, I suppose. (laughs) But luckily, it seems to be contained right now. But um, we'll see what happens, I suppose, yeah. The only thing that uh, piqued my interest a little bit is when they were talking about if you don't get these masks, then medical professional medical professionals right. who need them mm-hmm. will not be able to have them. But they also said that the masks weren't effective for what we're looking right, at. Right, right, It would seem like they would need to be effective in order for them to need them. But I, I suppose they could need them for other purposes as well, right? Yeah, There probably. could be other things that the masks are effective for. That would make sense, uh, sure. But, you know, the bottom line is this. I'm sure a lot of our listeners hear information coming from places like the CDC or the WHO and think to themselves that they might have some kind of agenda in pushing this information. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be skeptical and I'm, I'm going to do my own research and not necess- just take everything they say for gospel. And I think that's fair. Don't you think that's fair to to – want to look into these things and sort of question some things that come out? 
Yeah, I think it's wise to do that. And I mean, I personally am still a little concerned about it. I'm not panicking. Of course, I think that's good advice, but can't hurt to be a little prepared. And who knows what's next? You know, this Mm -hmm. is an example of the times, you know, what's going to happen six months from now, a year from now, something else came out that's maybe more serious. Can't hurt to be prepared, I suppose. Can't hurt to be prepared. We do appreciate that professional insight, though, giving us the the, the rundown on, on what the serious concerns are. Russ, you've got coronavirus right now, don't you? He yes. got it uh, this morning, I think. Yeah. He got it this. Uh, he got it this morning. I have a bad case of the sniffles. <laughs> Stay on that side of the studio. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G in the morning with the Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. I want to shift gears here a little bit. We've got a very special guest on the line with us, returning to this program. We've got Pennsylvania Director for Gun Owners of America, Dr. Val Fennell. Dr. Val, are you with us? I'm here, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks so much for coming back. I understand you've got an update for us with the Second Amendment Sanctuary Ordinances gaining some steam here in Pennsylvania. Uh, yes, uh, a, a lot of steam. <laughs> it's uh, it's really it's bigger than I ever had imagined. We have people working in almost every county in Pennsylvania right now to get uh, Second Amendment sanctuary ordinances passed. Um, we have had success uh, in two townships already, Buffalo Township in Union County and West Mannheim Township in York County have passed our ordinance or versions of our ordinance. Um, and also, um, due to our efforts, a lot of uh, counties have picked up, and they, they may have not have been comfortable with passing ordinances, but they picked up uh, resolutions uh, Bradford County, Sullivan County, Huntington County, Cambria, and Bedford counties all have passed uh, resolutions, and um, and the media is actually attributing the even the, the the weaker resolutions to gun owners of America's efforts here in the state. Well, that's great. So, what have people done to really get on board with this? Well, I mean, it, this is truly a grassroots effort, and what what happens is we work with local people. In each county, uh, they're volunteers and what they've done is they've set up a Facebook page and they get, uh, they get people interested and they come to the pa- Facebook page. They can, from that page, they could either sign an online petition, uh, to show the support, uh, uh, for a Second Amendment sanctuary ordinance in their county. And they're also circulating, uh, paper petitions in gun shops, gun stores, uh, gun ranges, gun shows, you name it. Um, I just got back from a blue, the show in Bloomsburg a couple weeks ago, and uh, we got uh, probably close to a thousand signatures just at that show. So these are real individuals out there getting things done and showing their support. Exactly, exactly. And we also are having events in each county, and we're, we're getting standing room only. You know, two hundred people in a small room or bigger room. Um, you know, uh, just folks interested in protecting their Second Amendment rights. And so it's been very, very good for doing that. I think what's happening, Mike, is uh, Pennsylvanians are looking at what's going on in Virginia. And they're looking down the road and saying, we don't want to be in the same situation should the legislature flip to the anti-gun party. And they, they're taking efforts to say, this is one of the things they're going to do to say, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're expecting our local officials to uphold their oath of office and, and not to enforce unconstitutional gun control laws. 
Uh, Dr. Val, Scott Henninger has been on this program before, retired from the Pennsylvania State Police and former constitutional Mm -hmm. professor. I know that he's had some involvement with this. He sent me something earlier today, a map of Union County where he resides. And it looks like each and every local government has taken some form of action, whether they have an ordinance pending or they're pending some kind of action or they've adopted a resolution. And then, like you said, in Buffalo, you've got the ordinance actually adopted Mm -hmm. over there. Are people glad to see that there's some kind of support from these governments when it comes to their Second Amendment rights? Absolutely, they are. Um, and, And Union, I say Union County is one of our most active counties. Uh, there's been tremendous interest there and, and people are generally supportive. When I was in West Mannheim, uh, for the township, for the township, uh, supervisors meeting, there was again a standing room only audience. A lot of people testified and, uh, you know, cheers and applause when the township supervisors passed, uh, the Second Amendment sanctuary ordinance on a vote of four to one. So people are, they're, they're ecstatic when their local officials are saying, Hey, we understand what the Constitution means. We understand that we, when we took our raised, raised our right hand and took an oath to defend the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the United States, it actually means what it says. And we're we're not going to tolerate, you know, uh, gun bans, magazine restrictions, and those kinds of things in our jurisdiction. And, and so that that's really the value is is that. But also, Mike, I want to make it very clear. You know, when we have these events. We always, now that people are interested in their Second Amendment rights, we tell them right from the start, you've got to vote. Okay. You've got mm-hmm. to take an interest of who's, who's your elected official and you've got to get out to vote. That's one of the things that was a problem in Virginia. And the second thing is they must absolutely take an interest of what's happening in the legislature, follow the bills, you know, get on like uh, groups like GOA's email list where we let you know what's going on in the state legislature and take action. So those two things are are also extremely important, and we always, always emphasize those. And you might be able to prevent hanging on by a thread and fighting to prevent these unconstitutional laws from going through and these sorts of things becoming a necessity if you do get out there and vote. Is that true? Absolutely correct. And and that that is our message. You know, I mean, this is not a cure-all for everything. You know, this is sort of like... You know, if all else fails, you know, we do have a Second Amendment sanctuary ordinance in some places uh, or even resolutions. But um, it's been a great impetus to getting gun owners involved again and looking to protect their Second Amendment rights. And I think it really is our neighbors to the south that has caused Pennsylvania gun owners to wake up. And they're smart and they're seeing what they're seeing, the writing on the wall. And all it has to take is for the legislature to flip to the anti-gun party. And believe me, they'll be fast tracking tracking bills just like they are in Virginia. Governor Wolf is a governor blackface in waiting. Make no mistake about it. Pennsylvania is one bad election away from turning into Virginia. And I think that some of the people in Virginia suffered from what I like to call it can't happen to us disease, right? They think we live in a pro-gun state. Our rights are going to be protected. I don't need to make the effort to get out there and vote and tell my friends and tell my family to vote because it will never happen to us over here. Do you think sometimes Uh people in Pennsylvania suffer from that same thing where they get complacent? They figure that we're a a state that has a deep-rooted history in protecting the right to be arms so it'll never happen over here yes yes complacency is is a huge problem and you know fortunately i think people are looking at the virginia example and saying oh wait a minute if it can happen in virginia it can certainly happen here now dr val i've got to ask 
Anytime you have some sort of movement where they're moving to promote or advance the right to bear arms, it is not without its share of critics. Have you run into anti-gunners or or critics of any kind coming out at you? Bloomberg um, front organization du jour. (laughs) They're all they're all against it. Um, Unfortunately, we've also had some resistance from um, our state gun rights group here in Pennsylvania is really not supporting this. And, and that is really unfortunate. We have a we have a disagreement of opinion as to how this affects the firearms preemption law. We took great care in this ordinance to make, make it very clear that it does not regulate the ownership, transfer, transportation, and transfer of firearms. It's only there to protect citizens from enforcement of, un, of, of unlawful acts, such as what I mentioned before, gun bans, magazine restrictions, red flag, gun confiscation orders, things like that. Um, so uh, we're, we strongly believe that this does not violate the firearms preemption law. And uh, so we're, we're pressing forward even with the opposition that we have. That's 6120 you're referencing. Ownership, possession, transportation or transfer of yep. firearms prohibited by local governments, essentially. Um, yep. And it seems reasonable that people would want to have some sort of mechanism to prevent unconstitutional laws from being enacted, from being enforced and coming through and taking rights and having no form of recourse. So um, I, I think that the worst thing that could happen in the Second Amendment community is for people to try to eat their own, so to speak, because we've got, I, trust me, we've got enough opponents. <laughs> we got enough yeah. opponents with Bloomberg, as you mentioned, right? He talked about how in Virginia on the debate stage, I don't know if this was a slip, but he talked about how he spent $100 million in the last election cycle and said something to the effect of, I bought that election or I paid for that election. <laughs> so that's what you've got going on on the other side. Uh, I think this would be a good opportunity for people to come together and support our Second Amendment and our Constitution. We have experience with this in other states. You know, it, we, it's been criticized that Virginia is somehow different than Pennsylvania. We have an official uh, position statement that GOA wrote on this and say, no, that is not correct. You know, Virginia also has a firearms preemption law. And believe me, I know that because I was there and I led VCDL. Uh, so it's um, it, it's it's an analogous situation in in the case of preemption. And, you know, and, and again, I just want to go back to the fact that we don't want to be stuck in the same place the Virginians are in right now, and they're scrambling at the last minute to do something to try to protect their rights. And I, I, I think Pennsylvanians are being very, um, for having a lot of foresight in, in looking down the road and saying, this could be us, you know, six months, a year from now, and we, we roll into 2021 after the elections are over. You know, if we could look like Virginia in 2021, and make no mistake about it, they will fast track bills here. There's already 30 plus anti-gun bills. Many of them parallel what's happening in Virginia. Mm. They are the Mike Bloomberg wish list, and it's just sitting there ready to go. And like I said, we got Governor Mammy here in Pennsylvania is is Tom Wolf, and he'll be pushing every every single one of those um, those bills. And if the if the legislature flips to the anti-gun party. Guess what? It's going to happen here, and it may even be worse. Now, you talked about the momentum that we've got here in Pennsylvania. Has there been momentum throughout the entire country? Because I've seen uh, places pop up in New Jersey, even enacting resolutions and ordinances. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, this is such a moving target, no pun intended. But there's, um, you know, it's like some 21 states now that have passed Second Amendment sanctuary ordinance, well over 418 plus counties. you know, are either passed resolutions or ordinances of some sort uh, in 21 states. And it, as you know, it all got started in Illinois 
and then moved out west when the when the sheriffs kind of resisted the uh, red flag gun confiscation orders. And uh, it took it took it took root out west after Illinois, and then it spread after that. And GOA really saw a need to sort of standardize what was happening. You know, it was there was having little ordinance here, and there was a resolution there. And our our legislative council, his name is Mike Hammond, went through and called all that stuff together and said, well, let's take the best of the best and let's put it in this ordinance. And then with the full understanding that it's not going to be ready for every state, it's kind of a 90 percent solution. And then it takes a state person to pick it up and then maybe run it by a Pennsylvania gun rights attorney, Mm. uh, someone to, you know, or another state's uh, attorney to kind of go through it and customize it for that state. And, um, it, but it's, but it's working very well, uh, in, you know, Pennsylvania has really taken off very strongly with GOA's ordinance. And I'm sure it's not going to be easy. The fight is just beginning, but Dr. Val, we hope that you'll come back on and keep us apprised of what's going on with the Sassos. Yeah, we will. And, uh, Fayette County is actually set to have a vote on this on March 19th. And it may be our very first county. Fayette County, Pennsylvania is the birthplace of American independence where the French and Indian Wars started. So it's the beginning of the journey of American independence was in Fayette County. So what a symbolic thing that would be if Fayette passes on March 19th. So if you're listening in Fayette County, March 19th, get on out there. Dr. Val, thanks again for joining us. Well, that's all the time we've got for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Stick around for We the People, The Constitution Matters. Pastor David Whitney, Professor Phil Duffy, I'll be joining as the legal analyst. Stay safe. God bless, folks.